Hi, everybody. My name is Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Made him happy. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say that corny, cheesy thing that I used to laugh at, I am an eternally, incredibly grateful member of al I used to hear people uh, introduce themselves that way, and I was thinking, oh, God, this is so cheesy. And now I get it. I understand what it means. Um, I've spoken before at treatment centers to little tiny groups of people sitting around a table, and, and I always start my story with when I came into Al-Anon. I realized it started before that. Uh, in honor of Heritage Day, I actually looked up heritage in the dictionary because I wanted to be able to say something with some authority. <laughs> Excuse me. And the definition of heritage is something handed down from one's ancestors or the past as a characteristic, a culture, a tradition. And then I looked up recovery, and of course it had many uh, definitions, but the one I chose was a regaining of something lost or stolen, a return to health, consciousness, a regaining of balance, control, composure. We are heirs to a spiritual fortune. I love celebrating Heritage Day. So thank you all for coming. I came into the program in 1997. As I said, I I pretty much thought my story began there until after I'd been here for a while. And I realized my my story started way before that because I come from a family full of alcoholism and addiction. Not necessarily... um, people very close to me, although my brother died from this disease about a year and a half ago. And by the time that happened, I had such a peace about that. And I was at such peace with him and with our relationship and with his disease. He's one of those people in my family who never found recovery. And as much as I hated him, hated him, excuse me, as much as I hated that for him, I loved him. And the peace that I felt when he passed away was so surprising. He died a week before my wedding. And so many people felt bad for that, about that, and would say, oh gosh, what, what terrible timing. And I said, it's perfect timing. It's absolutely perfect timing. On Friday, we celebrated his life at his funeral. And on the next day, we celebrated life still going on, my life. And it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I know that he's finally at peace. And so that gives me peace. Um, I grew up in Greenville, Mississippi. And I was the youngest of four. And I was really cute. (laughs) Really, really, really cute. I know that's true because everybody in my family told me every day. So it must have been true. Uh, You know, I look back at those times and... Gosh, didn't we all grow up in a dysfunctional family? Every single one of us. I just don't know anybody who had perfectly mentally, spiritually healthy parents. I mean, you know, they all did the best they could and bless the hearts of my children. They certainly didn't have perfectly mentally and spiritually healthy parents either. But I learned a lot of things from my family and from my culture, from the church, from the school, from everybody in that time that don't serve me today. And I've had to let go of a lot of my old ideas and beliefs. One of the basics, the overriding thing that I learned, was dishonesty. 
I learned that it wasn't safe to be me and it wasn't safe to tell the truth and if I felt any way other than happy and funny and all those things that I tend to appear to be, then I uh, was disapproved of in some subtle way. Um, I, had a, I had an uncle, my mother's brother, was also a chronic alcoholic and died from that disease. And I know I remember when I was a little bitty kid, he was, you know, he was kind of, he was considered bad in my family. We called him Bubba, and Bubba was the bad one. You know, everybody was mad at him all the time. He drank, he lost jobs. You know, he was the typical story of the non-recovering person. And he would come to the house, and he would pick me up, and I was little, I mean like two or three years old, and I have this cellular memory that he would pick me up, and he smelled of cigarettes and whiskey and sweat, and I just remember I didn't like it, and I wanted to get as far away as I could, but I was told that I shouldn't do that because that wasn't being nice to him. Um, boy, I wish he were around today to receive the love from me that I could not give him when I was young because I didn't understand diseases. I didn't understand it. All I knew was what my family told me, and that was that he was bad. Uh, he never had very much approval. So I had these... I had these family members. I had nieces and nephews and uncles and brothers and fathers and who knows. I mean, it was just everywhere. And I didn't think it was that weird, you know, because it's just the way it was. It never occurred to me that it was a disease. It never occurred to me that it was something that you loved somebody through, that you loved them anyway. I just, you know, I did the best I could. I did the very best I could. So I had all these opportunities to get into recovery, and nothing seemed to warrant that. What I did believe was that I could do everything by myself. I was terminally independent, so to speak. I sort of volunteered for the disease of terminal coolness, you know, which was pretty much death to any truth inside of me, any true self-expression, anything genuine or authentic that I could express about myself. Of course, I didn't know that. And it didn't matter what I looked like on the outside. On the inside, there was a woman who was just a little bit hysterical. I mean, you couldn't tell it. It was the one on the inside, you see, that I covered up very well. A little bit hysterical, a little bit neurotic, a little bit insecure, a little bit jealous, a little bit, you name it, and I had it. So my, neg my negativity, my fear, my... Gosh, my just crippling fear of being honest about who I was really was just a big, just as big an addiction for me uh, as alcoholist to the alcoholic, and just as dangerous. I was addicted to being smart and being cool and being funny and being cute and having the answers and knowing it all, and oh, oh, and being right. I don't want to leave that out. I was very <laughs> addicted to being right, and so life went along. I uh, was raised in a church, and intellectually, I believed that there was a God. Intellectually, it made sense to me. There was something big enough to make the ocean, you know, all those big things, big, big things. But that's as far as it went. I had tried that praying thing. It didn't work for me because I never got what I wanted. You know, I, you know, I prayed, you know, please make him change, please, you know, whatever it is, all the the Santa Claus list, the Christmas list of all the things I prayed for, 
And I never got what I wanted, and so I concluded, because I'm really smart, that this doesn't really work. God doesn't really care. He's just in charge of oceans and mountains and big things like that. He, he doesn't really care about the lives of we little people. Then in 1997, that part of the story began that got me to come to see all you folks. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, I had a lot of knowledge. I had a lot of book knowledge about alcoholism. Because it was in my family, I enjoyed reading about it. And so I, I had the intellectual understanding that this was an addiction and it was a disease. And I even had an intellectual grasp of the first step. And I could see, with my brother, for instance, I could see that my parents just didn't get it. You know, they just did, they were the, the typical enablers. And I thought, God, don't they see they're not helping him? Can't they see that? Detachment came naturally between me and my brother. You know, I never yelled at him. I never, you know, by that time I was overthinking he was a bad boy because actually he was my brother. He was my big brother and he and I always got along well. I didn't have a lot of judgment about him. <clears throat> so I had that intellectual grasp of the first step and I would see how my parents were with him. And I'd go, God, that's just not helping. I wish they could just see that's not helping. And then I just went on with my life. And so I had these opportunities time and time again. You know, in my family, I, there were opportunities to uh, show up here and, and stay. I made a couple of failed attempts in the years before. I had the misfortune, although it's not really that unfortunate. I probably wouldn't be ready anyway. But, you know, as all of us know, there um, every meeting's not incredibly healthy that has ever been formed in Baton Rouge. And I had the misfortune on my first trip to Al-Anon to go into a meeting where it was a large, years and years and years ago, a very long time ago. It was a very large group, and it was so large that they broke off into smaller groups. And when I was there, and I said, you know, I had this family member who just got a DWI, and, and I was a newcomer, and, um, you know, I, I just don't know if he's an alcoholic. And this man says, well, of course he's an alcoholic. Get your head out of the sand. You're in denial. And he was like finger wagging and fussing at me, and I'm break into tears and I'm thinking, well, I don't like this. You know, that's not why I came. And I left and I never went back. Now, that meeting doesn't exist anymore and I guess we can figure out why. Um, that's not the Al-Anon that I came into in 1997. You know, in March of 97, February technically, I found out that my young son, my baby, 23-year-old baby, who had been partying in the typical fashion since 15 or 16, like, you know, most kids do. He'd had his share of drinking, he'd had his share of doing various and sundry substances, and I never thought anything about it. I just thought this is normal. This is what young men do. He didn't live with me at that time. I didn't go through the agony of uh, being stolen from or being cursed at or any of those things. It's a very undramatic story. But suddenly, one day, his friend from childhood came and said, he's in trouble. He's putting a needle in his arm. Well, you can't deny a needle. <laughs> you can't say, well, yeah, that's just normal stuff you do when you're out socializing when you're 23. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I was standing at my kitchen counter and this young man was sitting across the bar from me 
And when he told me that, my knees buckled. And I was like this, holding on to the counter. I could not stand up. My body would not support my weight. And I just thought, oh my God. Because when you say needle to me, you might as well say death. That's how it felt. I had the fortune of knowing a counselor at that time and I called her immediately and she said, oh my goodness, you know, you're in an area that I don't know anything about, but I have someone else here in my practice with me who's been in recovery for, you know, like 25 years or something. I've forgotten what it was. And I'll let you talk to him. I'll try to shorten this story. You know, David asked me what time I was speaking and I said one to nine. <laughs> He's settling back. It's just a typical day for him, you know. <laughs> but I'll try to shorten this just a little bit. I won't tell you all the details, but we very quickly, as I always knew I would do, as I always said I would do, when my children said, what would you do, Mom, if one of your kids had a drinking or a drug problem, I said, I'd slap their butt in treatment so fast it'd make their head swim. And I thought, no, I'll take care of that and I'll be in charge and I'll fix them. Bye, guys. <laughs> so that was the first thing that came to mind. That is what we did. We did an intervention. And it was, I enjoyed the uh, cooperation and support of all my family members. And it was scary and it was nerve-wracking. But still, I was in that first stage, you know, I was in shock, and I was in action mode. There's a problem, fix it. We're going to fix it today. So we planned it for a few days, I think just two days actually, which seemed like a month, and then approached him. Long story short, it went pretty well. You know, I was absolutely sure how it was going to turn out. I was positive. I planned it very well because I was really a good planner and a good controller. And so when all the family members gathered, I just said, you've got to make sure there's a, a man in the family at both doors, one at the front and one at the back, because he's going to run. I'm telling you, he's going to run and he's fast. I don't care how, what bad shape he's in, he's fast. He's going to run. And so I had plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. You know, I had all figured out, if he does this, we'll do this, and if he does this, we'll do this. Because I knew, you see, I knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to run. So when he came to the door, he didn't run. He looked straight at me and he said, what took you so long? Bless his heart, he thought I knew. You know, how could I not know? And that's the thought I was having at that time too. Was my God, this is my child. How could I not have known? Denial is a powerful thing. You don't know you're in it. The intervention was successful. It was painful. I'll tell you a few little details because I think it's valuable for people in, in recovery. I, I said this to someone I sponsored the other day. One of the first questions the counselor asked when we sat down and he addressed the whole family and he said, Who's the switchboard operator in the family? <laughs> that, that would be me. And everybody was pointing at me. And you know, I've never heard that term before, and I knew exactly what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant. I'm still amazed at how I just knew what he would do, and all he did was say what took you so long. You know, all that pre-planning we do, for the what-ifs, you know. Anyway, I digress. 
he went into detox for a week, and I did pretty well that week. I was large and in charge and capable and competent, and I was tending to business and working out financial arrangements and doing all the things that have to be done when you're about to send someone to treatment. And if none of you have ever had that experience, it's, um, it's interesting. It's also expensive. <laughs> I mentioned that. Um, that all went pretty well. On a Saturday, we picked him up at uh, what used to be Meadowwood at like 5.30 in the morning. He was flying from New Orleans all the way to Montana. And all the family gathered again. Family showed up. Everybody supportive and loving. And we all went to New Orleans to see him off. Well, as fate would have it, there were delays and it was taking a long time. And I sort of had a skewed idea of what it was going to be like because while he was in detox, he was on methadone, and he felt real good. You know, I knew a lot, but I didn't know enough to know that methadone was just another drug, <laughs> you know. He felt real good. By the time we picked him up at 5.30 in the morning, he wasn't feeling so hot because he'd not had it since the night before. And so he was getting progressively sicker and sicker and sicker as we sat there in the New Orleans airport. Uh, everything that could go wrong did. The, the flights were delayed, and then his particular flight was canceled, I think it was, and got on another flight, and then it ended up having to spend the night in, in St. Paul. And all I could think of was, he can't go alone. Because if he's overnight in a big city, he'll do whatever it takes. I know that he will do whatever it takes. And so the family discussed it, and my older son got voted to get on that plane at his short shirt sleeves and go to Minnesota in February. Um, fun experience for him. And that was settled. It was several hours before he actually got on that plane. He was saying his goodbyes to everyone and of course I was saved for last. And I was putting him on a plane to go to a place I'd never seen trusting him to people I'd never met. I'll tell you what it was like. It doesn't matter that he was 23 years old. It was like having my baby in my arms and walking to the edge of a cliff and just going here and hoping that somebody, something was going to catch him. It was the most exquisite profound pain I have ever felt in my entire life. I have never been so afraid. Someone said to me, what an act of faith. I said, oh my God, I didn't have any faith. I don't know what it was, but it didn't feel like faith. I look back on that moment and I realize that that was my step one experience. That that was that moment where I realized that I was utterly powerless over what was going to become of him. Utterly. There was nothing I could do. It was that moment of loving him enough to let him go. The moment where I loved him more genuinely, authentically, than probably I ever had. And it was the most horrible, gut-wrenching moment of my life. And once again... When we hugged goodbye, we both started crying, and I couldn't stand up. 
and I turned around and someone had to hold me up because my knees, again, I've had those two knee buckling experiences. And all I could think of is, oh my God, what have I done? I mean, what have I done? He's, he's going somewhere now and I have no control. You know, that idea, I can't, I can't control it. This was a big mistake. I shouldn't have done this. This is horrible. I mean, oh, it's just everything that could run through my head ran through my head. I, um, <laughs> I had some Xanax. I'm a bit of a dope head. <laughs> so I remember telling this story to him later. I, I said, so, you know, when we got in the car, I took half a Xanax. He said, half? <laughs> what is wrong with you? He said, what strength was it? I said, I don't know. He said, well, what color was it? I said, it was white. He said, half? <laughs> Obviously, the addiction gene skipped me somehow. One my Xanax, you understand. I feel like an addict, don't I? No, no, no. Not mine. One my. My buddy. Uh, drove back to Baton Rouge and had settled down a little bit. I found myself within half an hour alone in my house, and suddenly it closed in on me. And for the first time in my life, wasn't the last first time in my life, I thought, oh my God, I can't be alone. I cannot be alone. I will die if I'm alone right now. My best friend coincidentally lived two doors down from me, and I called her, and I said, can you <laughs> come down here? It took me 15 minutes to get out, and she said, of course, I'll be right there, and I was laying across my bed just bawling, and my best friend, when she didn't know what else to do, bless her heart, she didn't say anything. She just laid on the bed with me and rubbed my back, and we cried together. I thought that it had to somehow been my fault. It must have been. I was the mom. I couldn't shake that. It was like, God, what did I do wrong? What did I say when he was four or was I too hard on him when he was eight, or was I too easy on him when he was 12? Or, you know, what was it? What, what happened? How did I cause this? And I could not shut my brain off, and I was making myself sick. And this was on a Saturday, and he didn't get to treatment until, how'd that work? Sunday. And I paced the floor because I knew I'd get a phone call when he got there. And it was time for him to be there, and the phone didn't ring, and the phone didn't ring, and the phone didn't ring. And any of you who've been through this know that every minute is like an hour while you're waiting for that phone to ring. Finally got the call that he was there, and then I felt like I could stand down. So at that time, you can stand down, and you can absolutely and totally lose it and fall apart. And I went to bed, and I cried, and I cried. And I'm talking about for days. I had never been so broken as I was at that time. And I know I see all the heads nodding. There are people in here who have had this experience. It's just remarkable. It really is. Um, all my friends and my family were so concerned about me because I'm pretty basically a high-spirited person, and my spirit had been broken. Never underestimate the value of a breakdown. Clara's giving me the sign again. I feel like a rock star. I think you're just going. Like, 
I finally actually got up and went to the doctor and um, got a little help there, but mainly I was just broken. I just felt broken and I just could not deal with the fear that I was going through. It was crippling me, absolutely crippling me. You know, I thought I'd been right all my life. So all I could think was, what if everything I've ever done and everything I've ever believed and the person who I thought I was, what if I've been wrong all this time and I have done this to my child? I tell you, that was just unbearable to believe. It was unbearable to think that I just messed up again by sending him off to these strangers. It didn't help that I was getting a phone call from the counselor there saying, well, they, get, they call you once a week from this place and check in. And, and the first phone call I got was, well, he's in pretty bad shape. And he's pretty sick. You know, he's physically pretty sick. And so this is how we're dealing with this. Um, this was up in Montana in the snow in what was still winter. They said, you know, he's got on snowshoes and we're tromping him up and down the mountains in the snowshoes and trying to wear him out so he can sleep. But, you know, I got the call that said he hadn't slept for like 70 some odd hours. Of course, all I wanted to do was jump on a plane and go get him. I mean, my God, what are they doing to this, to this kid? I continued to refer to him as a kid. But you know, I had loved him enough to let him go. And little by little, it was beginning to resonate with me that it was still the right thing to do. Because as much as I knew about this disease, there was one thing that I was never even tempted to do. I was never even tempted to think that if he just came back and lived at home with me that he would be okay. I knew better than that, thank God. So I go to my first meeting on Thursday, March the 6th, 1997, and it was a Thursday meeting. Well, obviously I just said Thursday, didn't I? <laughs> Clever. Uh, <laughs> so many of the people who were in that room that day are in this room today. I've seen a, a couple of folks I haven't seen in a very long time who came just to be loving and supportive of me. And God, thank you so much. God, I'm getting sappy. I'm about to cry again. Uh, I went in there and I sobbed. I sat in the corner and I cried and I sobbed and it was horrible and I was miserable. And I, you know, and I don't know what people said in that meeting. I sort of got a couple of inklings that I could repeat to you, but it's the standard newcomer stuff. It was profound to me that day, but it was things we've heard a million times and that we've all grown to say a million times to other newcomers. But I'll tell you what, emotionally I was on my knees. It was such a wonderful place for me to be because it was like God was somewhere saying, oh, thank God, I finally got your attention. Can we start now? <laughs> you know? That's a great line, can we start now? Because before that, I didn't consider God. I learned things in Al-9 like, if you give God the wish list, you generally just don't get what you want. You don't get things your way. You don't get them in your timing. You know, I, one of my favorite care, prayers has become, God, thank you for everything you've given me and everything you've taken away. That was hard for me to say at first. But I, I operate in circles now where when something happens that I don't, don't agree with and it doesn't feel too good and I'd rather it didn't go this way, what immediately comes to mind is I can hardly wait to see what good comes from this. 
I say it through gritted teeth most of the time. I hardly wait to see what good comes from this. <laughs> but that is how I have learned to think. So I'd had my, uh, my step one experience and my step two experience where I get in that meeting and these people seem to be fine. I was sharing with someone a few minutes ago about it. I remember going to lunch with all these women to the Taste of China and sitting at the big round table and all I could think of was my son's in treatment. You know, my son's in that. Oh, my God, my, my brother's an alcoholic. And oh, oh, it's all I could think of. And they were sitting there talking about what they were going to plant in their yards. And I thought, I thought there was something wrong with them. I really did. I'm thinking, how can you sit here and have just a discussion about trivia when people you care about are suffering from this disease? What is wrong with you people? I found out they were crazy. <laughs> She's sitting right there. <laughs> you know, I got around to step three, and this is what step three means to me. Because I have some awareness that thought is this creative level of everything, that if I can change the way I think, it simply means I can change my mind. And you know, the first time I heard things like attitude. <laughs> what were y'all trying to tell me? I'm fine. First time I heard things like attitude or gratitude, I just thought it was corny, you know. I thought, frankly, <laughs> I thought most of what you people said was corny. Yeah. It's the truth. I apologize now, you know. It's nothing personal, but I thought it was corny and cheesy and trite. And, you know, these things all resonate for me now, but they didn't in the beginning. But what I know now is that changing my mind can be the ultimate empowerment for me. It really is. When I make a decision in step three to choose love over fear, it radically changes my life in incredibly dramatic ways. And that's all that step three is about for me. You know, I've considered in step two that, gee, maybe there's something I don't know. You know, I had to go through that agony of, oh God, maybe I've been the horrible mother. You know, because I'd done it the only way I knew to do it. It never occurred to me that there could be another way. It never occurred to me to listen to someone else. It never, I never entertained the idea that anybody knew something I didn't know or knew better than I did because I knew everything. It's wonderful to be at a stage of my life where I know very little now, you know, but I'm open to learning more all the time. But that was a radical shift in perception for me. It, it never occurred to me either to consider asking for God's will, they didn't teach me that in church. But I know the prayer says thy will be done, but you, you don't really mean it. You know? <laughs> it's just a prayer. It's the words and you learn it, you memorize it, you don't really mean it. I'll tell you something that was key for me. What was key for me was when you all explained to me that I could have the God of my understanding and so with that level of creative thought I made up my own God and he pretty much didn't resemble the one I had been taught about as a kid he certainly didn't remember uh, resemble the one that I was taught about in my church or by my mom 
uh, I'll, <laughs> I remember as a kid someone referring to this lady as a God-fearing woman and I thought how could that be good why would you fear God you know I apologize if that offends anybody in the room who uses that term but I, I just remember that that didn't make sense to me that if God's good and God is loving then why would I fear God and so I made up my own you know I'll be glad to share them with you anybody who doesn't have one right now I'll tell you that um and the one, the one that I made up, and actually it's not made up, he's real to me. And I use the, you know, I use the pronoun he out of habit. I like to mess with people and say, I spoke to God this morning, she said, tell you hi. Just to watch some people go crazy. But the truth is, God is, doesn't have a persona that's male or female for me. God, for me, is light. And light always cancels out darkness fear for me is darkness no matter what no matter how dark my world gets light always reasserts itself for me God is healing God is loving my God doesn't judge I got plenty of people to do that for me you know I sure don't need a God who's going to judge me my God doesn't even have to forgive me because I wasn't judged to begin with now that's a radical concept for me my goal in life is to be like that with other people. And I actually try to do that. I have, um, I have that step three experience every day. I make a decision every day. And I make a decision to have conscious contact with the God of my understanding. I'm pretty disciplined about it. You know it says in the beginning of the promises? What does it say? If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. And I am living proof of that. So I'm pretty disciplined. And most mornings, most mornings, almost all of them, I will get up and get my coffee and go into a space that I have designated for this purpose in my home. And I call it my sacred space. And I will go into my sacred space and I will spend quite a long period of time I will light candles because I really enjoy that ceremonial feel of lighting a candle. It's because since I consider God light, every time I light a candle, I say, God's in the room. God's in the room. I have a lighter, by the way. <laughs> you know, I went through that process. I took a minute before I came up here today and walked outside for a second to remind myself that God's in this room because the God of my understanding is everywhere that I go. I tend to feel his presence more in the company of other like-minded people like all of you. I tend to feel it more tangibly then. But I go and I have my meditation time and my quiet time and, and I'm generally reading, well, generally, I'm always reading spiritual books. Um, I will say this, gosh, if, you're, if any of you is an Al-Nazi, just put your hands over your ears. I like the big book, shoot me. It's not conference approved. <laughs> but you know, every time I hear anybody say anything about, well, that's not conference approved, it's, you know, that's, that's really more AA than it is Al Anon, I always want to say, well, let's get rid of those pesky steps, too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have conscious contact again. Uh, when, I'm, when I get in the car to go to work. It's just a habit. 
I've replaced some old habits with some uh, newer ones that serve me better, serve my spiritual growth. And when I get in the car in the morning, that's where I automatically go, you know. I just say, okay, guys, me again. Going to work now, like he doesn't know. <laughs> this is the way this works for me. Uh, a couple of winters ago that we were having a particularly bad patch, and we had a couple of weeks where it was raining and really cold, you know, for Louisiana. It was really cold. And it was long enough that I was gotten pretty tired of it, and I went to go to work that morning, and my feet had gotten wet going to the car, and, you know, the car was cold, and I'm driving down the street, and I am just being pre-grumpy for the day. I'm planning ahead. And I'm going, God, I'm freezing to death, and it's nasty, and it's wet, and I have to go to work. And it's like, I love these moments where I just go, oh, I forgot. You know, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere saying, you have a job? You have a car? You have shoes? You know, it's so easy for me to get into gratitude these days. It, I, I amuse myself with it. You know, it's so much easier for me to see that everything in my life is happening exactly the way it's meant to happen, and it all has a purpose. And it's, I just don't stay there very long. Uh, that conversation can be brief, or it can last for the duration of the drive. It doesn't really matter much. It's pretty cool when it, it uh, lasts the whole drive. But I'll tell you something. My conscious contact with God happens in every moment that I remember who I am all during the day. I am a magnificent, glorious, light-filled child of God. And every moment that I can remember that, I'm in conscious contact with the God of my understanding. Sometimes during the course of the day, I forget. Sometimes my ego shows up. That should be surprising to some of you. <laughs> So here's how I see my ego. First of all, my ego is male. <laughs> well, it is. It is. I was very flattered one time when someone toasted, toasted to me on my birthday years ago, and he said to Maggie, who has all the vices and virtues of a man, and I was flattered. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I can almost see my ego coming, and he's a man, and he, he has that really good looking you know <laughs> really good looking sexy seductive he's wearing a tux <laughs> kind of a James Bond character you know and he comes up and he invites me to join him it's kind of an ego dance you know he kisses my hand and he says I'm here you want to dance and then as we're dancing we can look at all of you and say oh she's so stupid <laughs> God. Oh, you know, when I'm starting to look at other people and having judgments I'm so aware that I'm dancing with the ego again man it's great he's, he's really seductive he really is not that it gets men you understand just my ego character happens to be a man um, and it's in those moments that I'm involved with my ego that I forget who I am I honestly totally forget who I am that's not who I am I, I have this little thing that I've been using lately that I stole from somebody else, of course. But whenever I'm being annoyed with somebody else, you know, sometimes I don't remember that God likes us all equally, exactly the same. Uh, uh, somebody used to say in meetings years ago, that there's nothing I can do that's so good that God's going to love me more, and there's nothing I can do that's so bad that God's going to love me less. Now, I bought the 
God's not going to love me less part, but I really thought he loved me more because I was better. You know, I was superior. So whenever I'm annoyed with someone else, it's like automatically this little voice comes in my head when I'm grumbling, going, God, she gets on my nerves. It's like God's over there saying, really? I like her. <laughs> that is so handy for me to use. Really, I like her. You know, and I joke about that all the time, but that's the truth. You know, when I remember who I am, and when I remember that that lady who's getting on my nerves is just my sister, and the guy who's really driving me crazy is just my brother, you know, it's just sibling rivalry more than likely, that the God of my understanding doesn't think I'm better because I'm an Alana. The God of my understanding doesn't. He just didn't give me extra points because I pray. You know, the God of my understanding is there at your worst, at your best. It's always the same. That's a pretty uh, pretty comforting thing. I know that there exists within me when I'm able to tap into it a mind that's filled with love for everybody, free of condition. And the really shocking thing is that I love myself, free of condition. I've said in meetings before that al is where I came to fall in love with myself. And I always see these looks like, oh, God, so arrogant. That's not arrogant. That's humble. You know, when I'm able to see myself the way God sees me, which is to see myself right-sized when I don't think I'm better and I don't think I'm worse, I'm just this glorious child of God. What is there not to like? You know, I used to have so much to prove. Oh, my gosh, I had a lot to prove. I have a lot more energy now with that devoting it all there. I had a lot of walls around me. And I didn't know. I mean, I thought that what I was doing was keeping pain out. And it never occurred to me that what I was doing was keeping love in. And now, what I know is that, you know, I'm going to have some pain. I'm not done. There will be more pain to come. And that's not something that I say with, you know, some grim resolve. It's just the way it is. It's the way life is. I will have pain again. If you're blessed enough to be one of the people I love enough to let go, you know that I believe that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. I know for sure that there are people sitting in these rooms whose children did die. Mine didn't, but whose children did die. And my goodness, the outpouring of love and support I have witnessed in those times from the people in these rooms has been nothing short of a miracle. You know, I'm blessed to have a son who's in recovery today, and we have an interesting relationship. We talk about things like spirituality and God and how we feel about things like that. I'll tell you a funny story just because I can um, <laughs> shortly after and a lot, you, you who know me are I know y'all have heard all this stuff you got to be sick of hearing this thing. <laughs> shortly after he was back from treatment we were up into the wee hours of the morning talking and he wanted to know about this al program because his only experience with it was that I had learned how to say no <laughs> and so he was explaining to me that he sort of pictured all of us sitting in a big circle and we just go around the room and I would say my name is Maggie no <laughs> and practice saying no over and over and over again and so he said well do y'all do the steps I said well yeah 
So have you worked the steps, Mom? I said, well, uh, most, a lot of them, yeah. Because <laughs> I was in a hurry. I, I started doing the steps quickly. I wanted to feel better fast. And he said, so you've done a four-step? I said, yes, I have, as a matter of fact. He was stunned. You've done a fifth-step? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. He didn't come in, did he? Okay, just checking the room. <laughs> I love this. I think this is so funny. He says, I can just picture your fist out right now. I can see you sitting there saying, and once I was rude. <laughs> I said, you're exactly right. That's exactly how it went. And now I've given up rudeness. God's removed that. <laughs> this is an honor to be up here today. If you really want to hear my story, it'll take much longer and you'll have to come to my house and spend the weekend. <laughs> and you probably won't get to talk it'll be just like this <laughs> but since it is my intention to practice these principles in all my affairs and I love all of you and I'm grateful to all of you that you were here and I'm grateful to all of our ancestors that they got this thing going so that you were all here for me when I came in I'm going to at this moment honor you Thank you for having me here today. And now I'm going to love you enough to let you go.